Our text this morning is Hosea chapter 11, still in Hosea's prophecy, but moving very steadily toward the end of the prophecy this morning. We have something of a reprieve from all the passages of accusation and judgment. This is a very different passage for us this morning in chapter 11. Young Christians, young theologians, I have a riddle for you this morning. I'm going to say it once. Listen closely. Why does the lion roar? See if you can answer from our passage here in chapter 11. This is the good news of Hosea the prophet. The good news that he was desperate for and the people of the Lord are always desperate for. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, held them by the hands, but they did not know I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Yet how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come at you in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Oh Lord Jesus, what we pray for this morning is that You would open our eyes and breathe into our hearts, resuscitate them, and show us once again that it was You who took us up by the arms, You held us by the hand, You taught us to walk and strengthened our legs. You have taught us the gospel of good news that our God is pleased to defer His wrath and save sinners. And we need to know again that it is You who holds us by the arms, teaching us step after step, because we love to turn and run away when You call. And we love to sacrifice to the many idols we set up in our hearts and in our homes and in our lives. And there's no satisfaction in it. 
to show us again that it is Jesus who saves us and Jesus who keeps us and call us away once again from all of our false gods. And for this, we will give you thanks and we will praise your name. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? The strangest bit of Hosea's saga is that not only did God give to Hosea the prophet a prostitute for a wife, he gave to Hosea a heart to love her. And that's almost worse. Divorce would have been easy, clean, like a surgeon's cut. But love's knife always makes a jagged cut. An unhealable wound, the glorious wound. So for Hosea, shaming his prostitute wife Gomer would have felt good. It would have felt like the slow burn of justice. And stoning her, which was his legal right, would have made him feel righteous. But he can't do any of that. It's like he's tied by something invisible. He's haunted by love. So he can't do what he should do. He can't do what his friends advise him to do. To take off his wedding ring and wrap it up in a piece of cloth and throw it into the back corner of a dresser drawer and forget it's there and phone up one of the divorce lawyers plastered on billboards along the highway and get the proceedings rolling. He can't do any of that. Every night he sets a place for her at the table, even though she never shows up. And he writes for her love letters, and he mails them to nowhere in particular because he has no clue where to send them. And he smells the nightgown that she left hanging in the closet, hoping for just a trace of her perfume. And he always carries in his blood a restlessness. There are no proper words for it. But his heart feels like it's going to leap out of his chest and wither and die all at once. It's like never being able to catch your breath or to sleep or to think straight. And Hosea is tied up with the same invisible ropes that God himself is bound with in verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? Write you off, make you waste. My heart recoils, shudders at the thought. And instead, my compassion grows warm and tender. And I choose not to execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim. For I am God, and I am not a man. I am not like you. I don't do what you do. I'm the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come at you in my wrath. God has tied Himself up with His own nature. He is loving, and He makes holy. And so instead of turning His back on His tramp of a wife... God sends a prophet. 
And the prophet is given this same unnatural love of God for his own abandoning wife. And that's what this chapter is about. What ties Hosea versus what ties Gomer? What ties God versus what ties his people? So what do a lovesick God and his lovesick prophet do? Well, Hosea walks the streets. He knows the red light district like the back of his hand, only not as a customer. More like a social worker, an activist, a rescuer. He bursts into back rooms. He checks with hotel desk clerks. He asks around. He pushes through the groping arms of working girls lurking in dark doorways who don't understand he's not interested in their company. He's looking for his wife. He has to love her. He is pulled, dragged on to love her. And if, if he happens to find some greedy John dragging her down a back alley in a pair of broken pumps, or he finds her pimp giving her a fattened lip or a black eye or knocking out a tooth, God help the other man. On my day off, I chased down a thief. I was in a sporting goods store. And suddenly there was all this commotion. Two clerks ran out the door. And then one ran back in and called out, phone the police. And the customer asked, what's all this about? And one of the other clerks said, This guy slipped into the bathroom and then he snuck into the break room and he stole an employee's wallet. So I ran out the door to have a look and by the time I got into the parking lot, he was two blocks ahead of me and crossing the street and two clerks were chasing after him. So I took off. He kept looking over his shoulder at the clerk's who were following on his side of the street, so he had no idea that I was making up the distance on the other side of the street. I had to cross through heavy traffic to get to him. Got hit by a car. Actually, I bounced off the car, rolled through a lane of traffic. But by the time I got to my feet again, I was on him, and he saw me coming at him, and he said, if you hit me, I'll have you arrested. And in hindsight, it was a good thing he said that because I was totally going to hit him. (laughs) When you chase someone like that, you think to yourself, with every footfall on the pavement, every burning breath, what's the plan when I catch the guy? And there's only one answer to it. You don't exchange phone numbers and you don't think to yourself, he just needs a hug or offer impromptu therapy. You chase him to get a good shot at him and if you get the shot, you take it. I may not have much to bring to the party, but whatever I have, I'm going to unload it on this guy. (laughs) Turns out that he wasn't all that bright. And every time I talked to him, he wanted to stop and argue few seconds later, the two clerks caught up with us, so between the three of us, we argued with him long enough to get the wallet back, and long enough for the police to arrive and arrest him, 
and nobody laid a hand on him. And later that night, I was talking to Jennifer, and I said to her, that was the best day off I've ever had. I need to do that again. I need to get a police scanner, and on Mondays, I'm going to fight crime. And here's the thing. It wasn't even my wallet. There was nothing at stake in this for me. I, I stood to lose nothing. I don't even know why I did it. There's no more explanation for it than simply to say standing around doing nothing didn't feel quite right. So I ran. But imagine what kind of fight would come out if you were out to free your captive loved one. So while Hosea patrols the streets in verse 1, God calls out to His people again. But in verse 2, the more He calls, the more they run. So finally, in verse 10, God roars like a lion, fighting for His people, not tearing them like He did in chapter 6, not wounding them in order to heal them this time. This time, He roars to tear the abusers of His people. And the roar of Almighty God that shakes the universe to its foundations, the roar of God that says He's going to have vengeance upon those who have mistreated His people, the roar of God that strikes terror into the hearts of His enemies, sounds like a virgin mother in labor pains giving birth in Bethlehem. And once again, there are glimmers of the Christmas story in Hosea's prophecy. And it shows up from the open of the passage. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. After Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary brought their heavenly child back from Bethlehem, and they dedicated him at the temple. And after they were at home one evening, and there was a knock on the door, and they opened it to find standing on the doorstep strange astrologers and wizards from the east who had brought with them pricey gifts. After all that, Joseph, Joseph has a nightmare. Poor Joseph can't get an honest night's sleep to save his life. Keeps having dreams and angels keep popping through his head. And this time he's told, Herod is seeing red and wants the death of the infant Savior. And in the dream, Joseph is told to run. So he wakes up in a cold sweat and he tries to shake it off. But it's ringing in his ears. So he shoves some clothes in a bag. And he makes sandwiches and grabs a skin of water and puts on a pot of coffee. And he shakes Mary awake and pushes the baby into her sleeping arms. And he says, nurse. And he drags the groggy donkey to its feet out in the stall. And he hefts his wife and child onto the beast's back. And he sets out on the road. And at daybreak, rolling around on the donkey's back and rolling in and out of sleep, Mary asks, Joseph, where are we going? Egypt. Herod wants to kill the child. Joseph, don't be ridiculous, Mary yawns. And Joseph stopped in his tracks so quickly, he pushed the donkey backward in its gate, and he wheels around with tears in his eyes, 
And he doesn't yell, but his words are arrows. Mary, Herod killed three of his own children because they were rivals to his throne. Imagine how deeply he hates this child entrusted to us. This child who is king of the universe. Herod is right. Our child, God's child, is Herod's enemy. He's been sent here to break every wicked reign. And Mary pulls the bundle closer to her breast. And Joseph pulls the donkey down the road. And the irony of the story is Joseph thought he was carrying Jesus into Egypt to save his life. But in truth, the infant sovereign was carrying Joseph into Egypt to save his life. And Mary's too. And ours with them. You have to remember that traveling to Egypt, in this case, is like being released from prison and then returning on vacation. See, we forget our history. We forget that we fought Cornwallis and his redcoats at Lexington and Bunker Hill. That colonists used to spit on the ground when the king's name was mentioned. So now, we travel to London and tour Buckingham Palace and think all the pomp is stirring. We forget that Germany tried to take over the world not once, but twice. And now we fly over to tour Bavaria or the Rhine River Valley and we find its old world charm quaint. But if you were a Jew, your history was in your blood. And there was no possibility of you forgetting. True, at the time, Jesus and his family fly to Egypt... To get away from Herod. True, Egypt is no longer a superpower in its own right. It's part of the Roman Empire. And yes, it's true that at the time, there were many Jews living in Egypt. More Jews in the city of Alexandria than in the city of Jerusalem. But that's all economics. That's all the empire settling its citizens out, running its marketplace, people traveling, needing to find work and livelihood. It's not forgetfulness. If Joseph and Mary and Jesus going down into Egypt weren't so prophetic, we might think it was glib. Nobody does this. Nobody goes back down into the hated land of Egypt on their own. Unless you're a liberator and you've come to set your people free. And so Jesus, the Son of God, goes down into Egypt, the land where Israel's history began. The place where Jacob's sons had escaped famine. And they lived there for generations and generations and generations. And one day, Pharaoh looks up and he realizes he has a Jewish problem on his hands. Egypt is becoming more and more Jewish, so he makes the Jews his slaves. They're not citizens anymore, they're captives. He builds his cities on Jewish backs. Until Moses shows up with his stutter and his plagues and his odd demand The living God says, let my people go. And then one night, Jews killed lambs. Lambs without blemish, without scars, without flaws, without spots. And they smeared the blood of those lambs across their doors. And they had a strange liturgical dinner that night. And they went to bed with their clothes on and they waited. 
And somewhere during that fitful night of sleep, an angel of the Lord slipped into the land, quiet and cold as death. And he took back all the lives of Egypt's firstborn sons who had not been bought with that smeared blood. And that broke the will of the Egyptians to hold on to the Jews any longer. That sent them away. And Jesus goes into the land of captivity, a captive himself. He's held there by Herod's policy of infanticide. But Herod dies first. And Jesus comes out of Egypt scot-free. He didn't just move back to Galilee with his family. He was carrying you out of Egypt when he came out. It was all a sign. It was all a prophecy fulfilled. It was a sermon. The life of Jesus is our exodus, our being escorted out of our imprisonment. Like a husband who marches into a brothel and throws a coat around his used wife and he leads her out. With fire in his eyes, he says to all who are in the room, she's with me and nobody dares to challenge him. And she leans into him because she knows that in his arms she's safe. And she'll forget tomorrow. She may run away again tomorrow, so he'll put his arms around her again to remind her. With Jesus' artful righteousness, you see, he didn't just keep the law. When Jesus was performing the law, it was a thing of sheer beauty. It was like Barishnikov leaping through the air. Or Yitzhak Perlman playing the violin. Or Michelangelo with a paintbrush in his hand. And the dust of chiseled stones stuck in his beard. And with Jesus spilling his holy blood as the Passover sacrifice for you. The smeared blood that covers you with atonement. While judgment for unbelief and refused love toward God darkens the horizon of history and gets ready to slip into the land. And when Jesus wills life back into his own lifeless body so that he walks above death now. He doesn't have to walk around it. He doesn't have to avoid it. He never has to defer to it or bow to it. He makes no way for death now. He can walk straight through the heart of it and feel nothing. Death to him is a cold chill. He can brush off his skin. And he did all these things to end your captivity. There is no captivity for those who are not judged. There is no captivity for those whose guilt is atoned. There is no bondage or imprisonment for those who are so expensively loved. All our sin, whatever version or form of it we prefer individually, all our sin is captivity and Jesus came to break it. And the gospel wrapped in Christmas is, your captivity is over. It has come to its end. 
Jesus, the king of the universe, says to the powers that have ruled over you, they have no authority any longer. And he pulls you away from lovers who don't know how to love you. They dominate you and control you and terrorize you and crush you and brutalize you. He comes to break the chains of your sin, the chains that you have forged tailor-made, wrapped around yourself, locked on yourself, shackled to yourself. And he pries them apart with the ease of pulling apart a child's daisy chain. And he ties you up with the cords of love. He unties you to retie you with the cords of kindness. You understand the image? Last week, when Jennifer and I were fighting, it was the worst it's ever been. At least it felt that way to me. It felt like things were coming to an end, like our marriage was a dry haystack, and I was holding a burning match. And I was particularly aware that week that I had lost my wedding ring in the Caribbean Sea this summer. Convenient, I thought. But as cold as my thoughts and feelings got, they never became Antarctic. There was one thing that held me from dropping the match. I have never been loved like this before. I have never been encouraged, forgiven, suffered, graced, fought with, fought for, reconciled, restored, renewed, called to sanctification like I have been by Jennifer. A ring is a nice sign, but its possession or absence doesn't save or ruin the day. The cords of love had me tied up. And I couldn't bring myself to break free of them, no matter how dark and cold and hateful I felt at the time. What the passage says to us is we're all tied up by something. Sometimes we're tied up by competing interests, warring powers. But all of us are tied by something. It could be The disbelief that the love of God could ever hold our hearts. And that disbelief works itself out into countless varieties of sin. Countless varieties of running away and abandoning Him. The search for other lovers. Or it could be that we're tied by the deeper conviction that the Savior's love will always catch me and it will always keep me and it will never disappoint me and I can give myself into that love with all its mysteries. It's rarely clear. It rarely explains to me all that it's doing and how all of the pieces of this love work together for me. But still it's reliable and I can drop all of my weight to be caught in its mysteries. So, which has you tied up? The ropes of deception and delusion and confusion? The ropes of anxiety and fear and worry? Searching for a solution, not finding a solution. 
frustration because your strength isn't strong enough. The ropes of bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and hatefulness. The ropes of control or perfectionism or joylessness or immaturity or hardness, harshness, discontent. Nothing's ever good enough. Excuses. Needing to please other people, needing the approval of others, fantasies, imaginings, ideals, expectations, demands, addictions to substance or pictures or relationships or no relationship, or self-importance or incessant guilt, or the comfortableness that comes from the familiarity of our brokenness, Some people love to remain captive because at the very least it's predictable. And the unknown of being turned loose is terrifying. This captivity feels like it's mine. But if I'm set free to follow an unpredictable Savior, that isn't mine at all. Or are you tied up with the cords of stubborn unbelief? A willful refusal to believe that sinners need Jesus. That I need Jesus to show me my imprisonment and to break my imprisonment. Or are you tied up in the way that this passage holds out to us? Are you tied up with the cords of a God who makes himself a father, who refuses to give you up and who can't be pushed or turned away from you no matter what you do to him? Are you tied up by a lion who roars for you and not at you? Are you tied up to know that a Savior broke into our world to chase you down when you were running away? A Savior who went into Egypt to set you free from all your tyrant oppressor idols. A Savior who can and will break the power of your sin, but whose glory over you and in you will never be broken. A Savior who kisses His forgetful, denying people with the truth of His Word and the deep breath of repentance and the washing of baptism and the feast of communion. And the holy internal tangles of His Spirit who builds in us a faith that can't easily be unknotted. Are you tied up by the good news of a Savior who is not afraid to shock us with His grace as the antibody for our persistent suspicions and judgments against Him? See, Jesus means to untie you and to retie you. And when he reties you, you won't want to break loose. Charlie Chan was an iconic figure in American cinema from the 1920s through the 1950s. This round, well-dressed detective who caught criminals with aphorisms spouted in broken English. Things like, tongue often hang man faster than rope. The fictitious Chan was actually inspired by a real-life detective, a man named Chang Apana. Apana was a Chinese immigrant, and he worked as a cowboy on ranches in Hawaii. And then when Hawaii was annexed as the 50th state, 
1898, Apana joined the Honolulu Police Force. And because he was Cantonese, he was assigned to the most dangerous beat. He had to patrol Chinatown. He only stood five feet tall. He was fearless. He was a master of disguise. He always worked alone. He refused to carry a gun. He preferred a bullwhip. And crime bosses and thugs were terrified of him. And one night, Apana broke into an illegal gambling house, and he single-handedly arrested 40 men, an entire crime syndicate, using only his whip. In our world, Jesus is a laughingstock. Nobody takes him seriously. He's just this strange rabbi, mismatched to the world he entered, preaching not performance but preaching something that makes no sense, dying to all our strength and being raised up again in His strength. But when Jesus walks into the room, armed with nothing recognizable to our world, a heart that pounds with holiness, scars from nails that speak of judgment lifted and forgiveness wrapped around us, And the bragging rights as the only one who has ever truly cheated death. When we trust the power of His name, and when we desire His purity to take up more room in us, and instead of giving to ourselves coping strategies, we give ourselves over to be healed by His grace, to be released into His loving authority, giving ourselves to live under His loving authority. When that happens, all the powers of evil and sin and unbelief and darkness that hold you down, that hold you out of enjoying His love, all those powers have to let go and run. To be sin's captives always feels like Alcatraz. But to be captives of the Savior's love always feels like walking through walls. And loved ones, you are free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love our captivity. It's so comfortable and familiar, and we love to fool ourselves that we're not captives at all. We've chosen it for ourselves, haven't we? How can we be captive when we've chosen our own oppressors? And it's not true. We're imprisoned by the sins we cling to. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see that your coming into the world was all for the purpose of putting these wicked, hateful powers under your feet and releasing us into your authority. So help us to believe your word. Make us responsive to your spirit, not resistant. And allow us to follow where you call, knowing that the good king may not do things to our liking, But he will never mislead us and he will never mistreat us.
And what we long for, Lord Jesus, is the freedom to come away from imprisonment to these sins and the freedom instead to be pulled, drawn, dragged by your cords of love. Show us how full your love is that we would never wish to leave it. For all of our cold and hateful desire, we cannot bring ourselves to drop the match. And every time we try, you catch our hand. And tell us again in your gospel that you refuse to turn us loose and let us go. Now we eat the bread and drink the wine that you have set out before us. Signs and the sermon and the seal that you are not content to leave us tied up in our sin, but you will untie us and retie us in your grace. So give to us just these things. Fill us with your gifts and do not send us away empty. And we will give you thanks. Thanks.